identify the very simple stages of your customer's journey. And then by stage of the journey, really ask yourself that heartfelt leadership question, what will we always do to support customers' lives? And what will we never do to dishonor them? And, and out of that will come behaviors that exist in your industry that you want to be known for kiboshing or getting rid of and um, things that you want to be known for that you do that no others would even consider doing. Welcome to the Lifestyle Edit Podcast, a show about creative female entrepreneurs and the businesses they've built. I'm your host, Naomi Mdudu, the Lifestyle Edit founder, business strategist, and coach to creative female founders ready to scale their businesses with intention. Each week, I sit down with a guest to pull back the curtain on the strategies successful entrepreneurs are implementing to scale their income and increase their impact. We are cutting out the fluff to give you weekly insights to uplevel your mindset and tap into your infinite potential to create a life and business you love on your own terms. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Now let's begin. Jean, welcome to the Lifestyle Edit Podcast. Thank you. Gosh, I'm so happy to be here with you. I am so happy to be here with you. I have been curled up over the long weekend with your book, so I'm very excited (laughs) to deep dive with you um, on all things customer-focused. So just to kickstart us off, can you just give us a bit of background about your professional journey that's kind of led up to this point? Of course, I have had this great privilege to have begun this journey back in 1983 where we weren't, we weren't calling it customer experience. And most importantly, I landed at a company at the time, which was, you know, essentially the Zappos of, of its day. It was Land's End. And I was first training 2000 phone operators and then was called up by the CEO to be what he called the conscience of the company. And I reported to the executive committee for 10 years while we were growing 80% a year, went public, et cetera. And after that, I, I decided that would be my career, which was uniting organizations um, in this role that had never really been held before, a customer experience leader or a chief customer officer. And I went on to report to the to the executive committee or the CEOs of um, Microsoft, Allstate, Mazda, and Coldwell Banker, in addition to Lands End, of course. And uh, I, that's what I do now. I coach organizations on how to earn the right to grow by improving customers' lives. Uh, this is my fourth book because every time I write a book, the world, I do it because either the world has shifted or I want to find a newer, easier way for people to do what I call pushing the customer rock up the hill. Um, I also am the co-founder of an association called the Customer Experience Professionals Association that we established to uh, unite practitioners in this new and burgeoning um, area of work. So this is all I've done my entire career, hitting about 35 years now. Wow. So what would you say have been some of the biggest changes in the industry since your last book? Well, it's interesting because I, I wrote my first co- book called Chief Customer Officer in 2006 and then rewrite it, rewrote it almost 98 percent new in uh, 2015 because three big things had occurred. Um, certainly social media, which is a gift to those of us doing uh, the customer work, because it's not about what you say you are. It's what customers say your behaviors are. Um, the understanding with financial economic downturns and shakeups that, 
organic growth from your existing customer base is as important, if not more in most cases, than simply looking at acquisition and new sales. And this notion and understanding that while companies become good and grow, especially your, your early companies, what will happen is areas of expertise are built, people call them silos, um, and it's important that they're built because there's competencies, but as you grow, you need to keep uniting them because otherwise that's the divide that creates a lot of this frustration and friction and uncomfortable uh, situations for both your employees and customers. And so the last big thing really is organizational that CEOs around the world are realizing that the silos don't unite on their own, uh, sometimes for a period of time. There, there needs to be someone or a group of people making sure you're looking at the customer's life, not reporting out silo by silo. So I'd say those are the three really big things. Certainly AI and data and other things are um, hitting the transom and becoming important. But what's, what's critical is that those don't become shiny objects, that they're looked at as tools to enable improvement of the life, that they're not the story unto themselves. Yes. Oh, I so love that you are really pioneering this conversation because I think, yes, with our obsession with growth as founders, you know, yeah, we forget that we, we need that permission from our customers. And I talk about it a lot on the podcast, but someone that I really love is Amazon founder, Jeff Bezos. And he, mm -hmm. I learned so much just listening to some of his interviews about how he's always saying that Amazon's Amazon is a company that is customer obsessed over competitor obsessed. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of delve into what that means and what that looks like in practice over the course of this conversation. So in the book, one of the things I love is that you really break things down into the what, but also the, the how. Um, so you have this five-step plan for kind of evaluating your current behaviors and implementing actions at every level of a business. So can you just walk me through what some of those steps are? Sure, of course. You know, what's interesting is because I was a practitioner first, um, that's always what drives how I write and how I coach companies, which is that you can't boil the ocean. And that, that for me, when I was writing this book, I wanted to organize it into uh, four categories that define all of our lives as customers, and then an evaluation or audit tool to level set and give you a reality check on where you are today. And so the, the, the five are first, um, evaluate how you're enabling employees to thrive. I call it bringing the best version of themselves to work or letting uh, congruence or of heart and habit be part of how you operate. Are people enabled to um, deliver care? Are there any things that you do that prohibit the, them to act in good conscience? Um, do you do you talk out of both sides of your mouth in terms of what your priorities are, as your moms would say, and you say be customer focused, but you, but you give them so many rules or deadlines, um, or quotas, or ask them to act in certain ways that aren't congruent with how we would want to behave um, normally. And, and that's in the first chapter called uh, Be the Person I Raise You to Be. So that chapter walks you through really a process for evaluating and understanding where you are today and enabling your employees to thrive. I would love to the just next... stop you there, actually, Jean. Yeah, I think that is such a, that is such an interesting point, and I'd never really thought about it until you. I was reading it in the book that yes, 
it, there, there is this tension that we will say to our teams, yes, we need to hit these kind of benchmarks. But yet very often that could be to the detriment of what we're saying, the type of experience we want to give our customers. And it's funny because I was talking to somebody else um, on the podcast recently and she was saying the same thing with um, her team, with customer service, with things like returns and, you know, um, making exceptions. And her team were being very kind of hard, fast with the customers. This is These are our rules. And of right. course, that is what they called. Yeah, they're called policy cops, right? Yeah, but that's what they've been told. But there was so there is sometimes can be this disconnect. So I thought that was a really interesting point. Yeah, it it is. And you know, again, we're we're quarterly inclined. We're all looking at red, yellow, and green dots. And again, you know, the thing about the way I wrote this book, I was very, very careful. This isn't about shaking a finger or indicting anyone or um saying you're doing it wrong, but these things seep in. You know, everybody, you know, for the most part, we're good people. We go to work, we work hard. Um, but the pressures and these requirements we put on ourselves inadvertently cause employees and customers pain because employees don't want to deliver these messages either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the second evaluation is uh, around how easy or hard do you make it to do business with you? Do you put your customers in a situation where they, they prepare and put their dukes up to do business with you? Um, you know, do, is there a black hole of communication? Um, do you have, do you honor customers time? Um, you know, I, and I call this chapter, don't make me feed you soap. <laughs> which <laughs> I thought was funny. It's just, you know, again, I, because of the title of the book, I got to take some Liberty on what I was calling things. But again, you know, do we make, our interactions with customers a joy or do they always feel like a little bit of work? You know, one of the stories is, do you put the, the monkey on the customer's back? For example, you know, think about something you have to get done, whether it's um, filing a claim for something or getting something built or even buying or returning something. Um, when you're, when you're, when you go to a store or a company and say, I need this done is the first thing they do to you is give you five action items you have to complete so you can get it done. And so, and th then the la the third, the third evaluation is around what I call put others before yourself. And this is what's interesting is we inadvertently design our processes and businesses around getting our goals achieved. You know, look at your mission statement is your mission statement about like what you said, how much you're going to clobber the competition or outbeat them or what your marketplace role is, or is your mission and clarity around why you exist, um, attached to your customers and their goals? Because, you know, what's paradoxical about this is the best companies re realize that they grow by enabling first their customers to achieve their goals. And so the stories in here are, are, are just super inspirational. You know, Cole Haan, the global shoe manufacturer actually has a lab where they envision your life in shoes. And, and, and because they re realize, for example, that the back of women's legs start to hurt after an hour or sometimes even 20 minutes in a certain type of heel, that's driven them to build um, shoes that have technology that is similar to an athletic shoe for women's heels. Now, if you're not starting to think that way in the first place, you would have never achieved that level of innovation. Um, when customers interact with you, do you start with their life or your paperwork? You know, it can be as, as simple as that. Um, do you design in 
empathy and care. And what's different about what I say in this chapter is this chapter is not about the front line, but rather de designing in. It's about wiring in humanity into your operating model. Um, for example, Mercedes Benz, when one of their lessees dies, they reach out to the fa they find the family, reach out to the family, and um, at no cost will and at no penalty will take the car back or pass it on to a family member, again, waiving any fees of transfer, et cetera. In addition, though, most importantly, they start with saying they're so sorry. Um, they give them some, some lovely um, gestures uh, to support them in that time of life. So the notion here is if you know when your customers are vulnerable, you have an opportunity to actually wire that into your processes and your policies. Um, and, and so that's how this chapter goes. It's really about redesigning for customers' lives. That is so true and so important. And it's something that I'm now really thinking about. How can I continue to support and, you know, allow my clients to feel held, whether I am currently working with them or whether they're a past client? I guess just to touch on that chapter in particular, at what stage should people be thinking about this? Because I asked you this question because I know there'll be lots of people listening who are in that hustle early stage of a business. So some mm. of those sorts of elements, they know intellectually that it's worth doing, but they're still trying to juggle everything. Well, what's interesting is several of the uh, case studies in in this chapter are actually about what early stage companies did that made them grow tremendously. For example, Warby Parker, um, the, you know, now renowned and beloved, um, glasses company who has retail stores all over, um, started by wiring in humanity. Um, they were started, they actually initiated their business because, um, one of the founders lost his glasses or something happened to his glasses and he didn't have the money to buy another, uh, replace the expensive pair he had initially purchased. And so he went around kind of squinting through, uh, I think one of his years of college. And so they decided that, you know, a good pair of glasses shouldn't cost an arm and a leg. And, and, and they went through a whole different model of, um, how to source them, how to sell them, the experience of buying them. Um, but they 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 decided they were going to show empathy. And this got into um, one of their policies people love them about, which is, you know, you can return your glasses for for no reason or any reason within 30 days of buying them, even if it means you sat on them. Right. Um, and so, again, these early stage companies, Bonobos, another one in the in that in that chapter you know, these are early stage and I think it's actually easier to wire in your humanity in um, your policies and what you will and will not do in that early stage. Uh, a simple way to do that, I, I do this with clients, um, we call it a code of conduct. Just identify the very simple stages of your customer's journey and then by stage of the journey, really ask yourself that heartfelt leadership question, what will we always do to support customers' lives? And what will we never do to dishonor them? And, and out of that will come behaviors that exist in your industry that you want to be known for kiboshing or getting rid of, and um, things that you want to be known for that you do that no others would even consider doing. What if I told you that I have a group of like-minded women to connect you with who are at a similar stage of business, but with different strengths and challenges? 
women who are ambitious and ready to do the hard work like you, who you could crowdsource your ideas with and get constructive feedback in a safe, confidential space. What if I told you that you could tap into this group, not only for support and accountability, but for insights into the strategies that are working and in real time? That's what the TLE Accountability Circle is all about. It's a monthly membership community for entrepreneurs who want to learn from like-minded founders and be held accountable for taking steps to realize their goals. Take your business and impact to the next level and transform your mindset in this amazing group. Apply today via the link in our show notes. It's so funny because as you're saying that, it makes me think of Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, Um, because he speaks about the fact that very often with businesses, one of the biggest marketing mistakes that people make is they focus so much on features or price. So we are cheaper than this company or, you know, our fabrics have this kind of cotton count rather than really talking about the transformations that the customers who will be buying those products want to get. So it kind of links back to everything that you're saying, kind of leading with the customer first. And I guess that ends up becoming the foundation of the way that you communicate, um, whether that's your customer service or your marketing strategy. That's exactly right. You know, what's interesting because it was, it was actually hard to figure out how to explain what this chapter means and 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 the way i i said it is um the and i call them make mom proud companies the make mom proud companies prove with their actions that they have their customers best interest in mind in mind this is at the heart of companies that grow most organically they earn a bigger piece of the pie because they improve customers lives this is a simple idea to accept but so hard to execute Operating at this level remains elusive until the paradoxical realization kicks in that to achieve your goals, you need to first help others achieve theirs. And, and I think it's that we're so internally focused. And again, I think this gets back to the pressures of business, right? Meet the quarterly goal, be better than the others in the, competi- in the marketplace or the competition that if we just got down to really understanding the goals of customers, and that's the other thing that, that we do by stage of the journey, talk about what are your customers trying to accomplish and you will be inspired to do things that you wouldn't have thought of. And again, everybody thinks, that you know customer listening by surveying customers is going to give you the answer well that's going to simply tell you how well you're doing now it won't necessarily lead you to this innovation that really bonds you with customers emotionally oh I love that so innovation means that you're kind of preempting what your customers will want before they want it so where where yeah, or realizing what they want and being inspired to deliver it in a way that really gets to the heart of the matter. For example, okay. there's um, there's a but but you're right. I mean, there's a little bit of Apple in there, right? The whole point <laughs> of uh, that Steve Jobs said, you know, we could have never asked people to design or give us feedback that would have led to the to you know to the iPod, for example. Nobody could have imagined it or the iPhone. But there's a great story in here about a hotel group. Um, a very exclusive called the Dorchester collection. You know, they have very high end hotels and what they were getting was a lot of comments and complaints about their breakfast service. Now, if you're an, if you're an everyday company or looking at this, even with a disciplined voice of the customer eye, what you're going to start doing is chipping away at the breakfast menu, right? 
well, we need to have more bacon or we need to do this. But what they did when they went deeper was they, they, they got past the first level of complaints and said, why is this occurring? What is it about our customers' lives? Well, what they realized were they were used to, they were on every kind of interesting diet or um, they had lifestyle choices that led them to, you know, not traditional breakfasts or they were used to being pampered so much that they were feeling penned in. And if you had just gone by the survey questions, you would have never gotten to their outcome, which is the waiter now walks up to the breakfast table and says, what can we make for you? Your wish is our command. There is no breakfast menu. I love that. Right? Yeah. So simple, but so powerful. When you design for the life, innovative moments come. There's a story in there about Mayfair Diagnostics, a a place where you go to get imaging, x-rays, et cetera. And, you know, whenever we do that, we're always vulnerable and fearful anyway. And, you know, initially they were thinking of the normal things to design um, for that experience, Um, make the paperwork easier, of course, that's part of it, et cetera. But what they found was when you're vulnerable and emotional, eye contact is um, what becomes most important to you that you're being recognized and taken care of as a human. And so that led them to designing um, pods where they're, they don't call their, them receptionists. You know, again, we're processed instead of welcomed, right? Um, you walk up to a pod and the person behind the pod is standing. And it's this beautiful, um, you know, organic looking pod made of wood. They're standing there. They've been preparing for you. They're looking at you eyeball to eyeball. You're not peering over a receptionist's desk at the head of someone who hands you a clipboard, right? Well, yeah. How many of our healthcare experience has been defined by that? Or even in business, you walk into a receptionist and you're, hello, take a seat. The hello, the emotional connection of the hello, but what they realized was that eye contact and emotionally connecting and caring and for someone means everything. And then when you're ready, they walk from behind the pod, you know, taking um, a cue from what we learned from Ritz Carlton and Nordstrom. They walk from behind the pod and take you to where you need to go next. As a human, they're not processing you. They're taking care of you. They're welcoming you. They're supporting your life. I think we take it for granted that because a certain formula has been operating for a long period of time, that that is what has to happen, which is why very often when I'm interviewing women who have started businesses in fields that they've never worked in, they often have such huge growth because they're not burdened by, you know, those formulas. That's right. The, throughout the book, um, what I also had done was I, I hired a, a wonderful man who did comics for me and then we wrote all the little blurbs at the bottom of them and under the last story one of the last stories which is what we're talking about in this particular case dare to rethink what's always been done the comic is a woman in a hospital or a a doctor's office waiting room and the the little quip at the bottom is if i chip in some money will you get some new magazines Right. So the model, <laughs> the model, the model of a hospital waiting room or, or, or is, you know, you sit there on these leatherette <laughs> reading horse and hound or whatever <laughs> magazine yes. with somebody's name ripped off of it. Well, well, that's the other thing that Mayfair rethought was the waiting room experience. You know, it doesn't have to be. It could be interactive. You could be doing things. You could have people talking to you. 
Um, you know, there's lots of things that could be happening in a waiting room besides you're sitting there reading, you know, really, really, really old magazines. And I guess that it goes to the whole crux of what makes successful entrepreneurs so special is that they see opportunities where other people see problems. That's right. And, and that's really what this book is meant to do is nudge you, as my Italian grandma's to say, which is by it, it makes you think through in these four cat, big categories of, of our lives as customers. Um, what would you want done? You know, what, how would how do you want to behave? And, and that's really what gets to the last big section. I call it take the high road, which is, again, as an entrepreneur, as you're building in, resists the policies, the fine print, the gotcha moments, you know, um, if, if you give a coupon for something, make sure there's not so many ifs, ands, and buts to it. You know, for example, there's an elderly couple who go to redeem a uh, restaurant coupon and it, they're, he, they're, they're given the bad news that there's so many conditions on it that no, sorry, they came the wrong day and the wrong time. You're going to lose goodwill. Um, there's a great story in here around the Columbus Metropolitan Library, the first urban library in the world, to get rid of late fees. Again, this all goes back to what's your purpose? If your purpose, for example, in supporting customers' lives is delivering the most wonderful retail experience that gives them escape, uh, rethink your checkout experience. Because if you're delivering escape and then it ends up with visa and paperwork and transaction you're obliterating escape with the transactional nature that you end someone's memory with yeah yeah and and just even when you're thinking about it just on numbers the cost of allowing that couple to have that meal for that discount compared to what you would lose by giving them a negative experience it's just not worth it that's right you know one of my favorite stories and what was fun was i read and read and talked and talked for you know almost a year doing the research for this because it's the curation of these stories was was very, very important to me because I wanted to take the reader on emotional journey of what they live as a customer, but then give them enough, enough real world examples that they could see their company and start flipping switches. Um, and I w- did a little jig for joy when I also saw the story about Virgin Hotels who, who launched first in Chicago and won every kind of accolade. And one of the major things they did was get rid of the nickel and diming that we experience in our, uh, our hotel experiences. You know, you don't get charged for Wi-Fi. Raul Leal, who's the CEO, says, you know, we consider Wi-Fi a right, not a revenue stream. And um, they came up with something they call street pricing for their mini bar, which is they actually have managers go around the neighborhood with a pad and pencil, finding out how much a bottle of water is, how much is a Snickers bar, so that, you know, all of us has, have had that fearful moment, <laughs> cracked open a $7 bottle of water in the middle of the night because we're so parched, <laughs> but we feel like we've been taken, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you just, you have this bad taste in your mouth about somebody, you know, in the book I say, charge what's fair, not what you can. Yes. Yes. You know, and, and that's really what that last chapter is around. It's doing the right thing. You know, what's your selling process like? What do your contracts look like? Do they feel like you have the upper hand? It's, it's so true. And it's funny because this kind of came up on a recent episode that we did with um, a textile designer, Susan Connor, and she had an astronomical 2017, uh, so much growth. 
And she put that down to exactly what you're saying. Like a big part of her business was all about working with trade, working with interior designers. So she interviewed a handful of them and said, you know, how, what's going on in your life? How can I make the process easier for you? You know, you're juggling lots of clients. You've got lots going on. How can this be more seamless for you? And just making small changes, putting certain automations in place, you know, she completely changed the face of her business. So it doesn't have to be these kind of drastic moves. That's exactly right. And, 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 and that's what I try to give as recipe cards almost inside of the book. And that's why it's broken into these 32 different, you know, scenarios and lives of customers and employees, because I think it's important to realize, you know, what's on the inside shows up on the outside and and that leads to the fifth step, which is the, the last chapter I call Stop the Shenanigans, but it's your audit. You know, again, I get to use these fun mom words, right? Um, it's your audit, and it's, there, it's the 32 categories of questions, but broken into really deliberate operational um, assessments you can make. And then, of course, to have a little fun, we have a Make Mom proud meter at the bottom of each one where you can kind of rank where you are. It's the unhappy mom um, from the cover of the book on the left. And she says, Oh dear. And we found, the, <laughs> we found the happy mom and put her on the right of the scale. And she says, so proud, you know, to have a little fun, but the whole idea is you need to know and audit where you are now in, in, and in, in many ways, inadvertently making these behaviors, part of how company customers and your employees think about you. So what do you recommend in terms of time frames? So how often, as a company, should you be looking at like kind of setting these objectives um, and then reviewing them? Well, you know, it never really ends. Um, it's, it's continuous. You know, if you, what I would suggest, if you first get the book, um, take a look at it, go through these, I'd start, you might want to start with the audit or start with your employee, the employee section. But one of the things that we do with clients is I call it building a customer room where you actually traverse the life of your customer on an ongoing basis. Um, and by stage of the journey, you know, organize your feedback, um, show what you're making them do in terms of screenshots and other things and regularly just put yourself in the customer's shoes and recalibrate. This is constant recalibration. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's, this is where that there can be that um, struggle and that kind of tension as a founder, all of the stuff that you're talking about is the working on your business um, and having that white space to constantly look from outside. And I think that's sometimes what, where the challenge is, is that it's so easy to be sucked into the day-to-day that you don't give yourself that white space to look at these things that are so important in terms of just making sure that your customers are happy, but also in your growth. That's exactly right. You know, in my chief customer officer book, I talk about the customer room a lot. And the other point of that is, especially in your fundamental and early growth stages, you need to bring your leaders together to glue yourselves to understanding the complete customer experience. Otherwise, early days, you're most at risk of silotizing yourself. And when, you know, again, one person's working on the mobile strategy and one's working on the communication strategy, but, you know, your customer is the only one seeing how it all clumps together. That 
that's when you're going to have your earliest failures early on. And what's, that's going to actually start costing you more money as you go back and have to troubleshoot and fix problems uh, that, that are inadvertently created by nobody looking across the entire journey. Definitely. So what are some basic decisions and habits that customer obsessed companies have that others don't? What are some simple steps that people listening can start implementing now? We've touched on a few of those already. Sure, of course. You know, I mean, I think one of the biggest things is how you hire people in, you know, from the be the person I raised you to be. There's a a wonderful case study in there around a a company called Pals Sudden Service or Pals. They have um, hamburger and hot dog stands, but they're beloved. They're 26 across Tennessee and hire the human behind the resume, you know, understand who the human is. Um, Trust your front line to extend grace give your people on the front line enough information where they can make the call on if you have a high value customer in front of them. Like we talked about earlier, uh, a policy around when a warranty expires and somebody comes in for a claim is all well and good unless until you've got a 20 year customer who walks in and is taking all that money out the door because you've got a frontline person that says to the person who came in three days late, sorry, you're out of luck. There's nothing I can do for you. Um, you know, so there's, there's some really important things there, hiring, um, and then do something simple, a simple rule that the Cleveland Clinic created what they call a no passing rule. And this was part of creating real clarity for what they would be. They've, they've evolved since then, but sometimes it's just very, very simple clarity that people need to have. So their simple rule was, um, when you see a patient in a bed and they've pushed on the call light, no one and no one, including florists, technicians, anybody can walk past that room without going in. So what's your version of the no passing rule? Um, you know, so that's in that first chapter, but it, it goes along through the whole thing. You know, go across your journey stages and do a trust audit. Where across your customer's life cycle are you doing something where customers might say, they don't trust me. Go across the stages of your journey and do a monkey on the back audit. Where are the vulnerable times in your customer's life where they're asking you for help and your response is giving them three more pieces of homework? So I would say those are some of the early things that you can do that are very, very tactical, but the book is filled with all kinds of actions such as these. With social media, we are now overloaded with customer feedback. How should we decide what to listen to? Well, I, I call it building a customer listening path. And, and what's important is that you merge multiple sources of customer feedback. And I like organizing it by stage of the journey. So we tell a balanced story of the customer's life because otherwise, you know, you get a bad tweet and you go off on that. But, you know, organize certainly your your social media but then also if you've got a call center or a place where customers are interacting with you organize that information by stage of the journey Um, look at your own operational information in a lot of SaaS companies we can look at the behavior of the customer and then watch all of that information that comes in by stage and you'll be able to see where the emerging issues are because multiple places are going to be colliding and pointing to the same thing what you want to do is prevent the squeaky wheel thing where you're going off 
because somebody's gone in the field or you've got a gut about something, go back and talk to more customers or see where multiple sources are pointing, as I mentioned, to the same thing. There'll be lots of people listening who are service-based professionals. So whether they're coaches, nutritionists, things like that. Do you have any suggestions on how you can continue to delight customers even after you stopped working together? Well, you know, what's interesting is that when we do identifying the customer's life cycle or journey, what people frequently forget are the most important stages, which I call the bookend experiences. The first stage is no strings attached, knowledge and information to be a thought leader and help people in their lives. And that stage actually needs to be at the beginning of your journey and at the end of your journey. Um, The difference is the end of the journey stage, it's not actually the end, it will deliver them back to you if you provide them with information. I call it the you know me experience. So you've been working with a customer or client and you now know who they are, uh, continue to provide information. Um, Make sure they opt in, but provide them with information that's beneficial and valuable. Give them audits, um, provide them perhaps with some free counseling or information so that there's a magnetic pull that says to them, hey, we're not selling you anything. This is no strings attached, Um, but we wanted to give you this information to help you with your life because we know who you are. So if you start that way, and deliver the, I call it the make me start smarter stage, which is at the beginning of the journey, give, be the beacon, be, be that place in the marketplace where they can go and find out information. And as soon as they download something, they're not going to get a sales call from you, right? Lots of my clients always say, just let me be smart. Leave me alone for a little while. And when I'm ready, I'll go back to you. You know, I mean, it's happening even on LinkedIn. You link in with somebody and the first thing you get is a pitch, right? Yeah. So that first stage and then the you know me stage, which is make me smarter. But now that you know me, make me smarter with relevant information that says you do know me. You know my life. You're supporting me. It's not about selling. It's about you remember that I'm out there. Oh, love that. Love this conversation. So many amazing takeaways. How can people learn more about all of this? So obviously we've got the book. Where else can people connect with you and kind of tap into all of your experience? expertise (laughs) (laughs) yes the book everywhere where books are sold amazon any place that you'd like to buy a book of course it's everywhere now Uh, my website is customerbliss.com i married a man named bliss so customerbliss.com we also have a lovely website that if you want to put it up for people you can um, for the launch and hopefully as people are reading the book they'll contribute it's called makemomproud.com there's dashes between make-mom-proud.com. And there um, we've got people all around the world posting a picture of their mom and how she inspired them and how they take that to work with them. Love that. Thank you so much for today. You're welcome. It's such a pleasure. And I hope this is giving people real value. So that's it for this week's episode of the Lifestyle Edit podcast. You can download more episodes of this podcast and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you enjoyed what you heard, we would love a review or recommendation. It's the number one way for us to share these stories and insights with as many creative female entrepreneurs as possible. And don't forget, all the information on how to join the TLE community is in the show notes or simply head to thelifestyleedit.com to sign up.